Good morning. Welcome uh, to Auckland AV. My name is Rowan, one of the pastors here. Well done on getting seated and in, and sorry about our fire alarms. I uh, just want to add to Lachlan's apology, just what happens. Uh, so there you go. Why don't we pray together as we come to this part in God's Word, that God by His Spirit today might fix our eyes on what is the, the high point of the book of Romans. Let's pray together. Lord, you know our hearts. You know what's been going on in our lives and the things going through our minds. And yet as we come here today and we hear your word read, we hear you speak. And so we ask that as we think through the implications of this passage this morning, as we reflect over what it is to know you and be known by you, we ask that by your spirit you would set our hearts and minds on what you have for us and that might change the way we live. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to see if you can work out what the following things have in common. Flying, heights, clowns, snakes, people, death, rejection, intimacy, failure, and driving. Any ideas? Fear. That's exactly right. They are all things that we are afraid of. In fact, when you search the term, the fear of dot, 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 the top 10 most frequently searched fears are the ones I just read to you. Crazy. People are that afraid of driving. <laughs> but there's lots of lists that add to the fears that we experience. Fears of spiders, the dark, war, or water, open places. There's fears of irregular patterns. I'm sorry, but there are. Uh, open spaces. I don't know, some people might be afraid of fire alarms. There's so many things that bring to our attention this feeling of fear that has a visceral response to the way that we react. For me, it, it's small spaces. I'm okay with reasonably small spaces, but if I'm in an elevator and it's full of people, I can feel my breathing start to go and my kind of goosebumps start to happen. I'm like, oh, get me out of here. It's just too close. And even more confined spaces affect me. I once went um, caving with a friend. He's a good friend of mine. We knew each other well. We've done lots of adventure things. I'm fine usually as long as I can see out in small spaces. But at this point, we, we went in this cave that he'd found somewhere near his house. He's like, I found this cave thing. Uh, and it was in the middle of kind of the middle of Australia, really, not quite the middle, but almost. And um, so we're out there at this place called Armadale, and in this, in this cave system that he's explored, there's no lights or anything, it's not even, it's just, we're crawling through stuff, and we get to one point where he's like, now this is the tightest bit, I'm fine at this point, I'm okay in the cave, but he's like, okay, you've got to lie on your back, and I'm lying on my back, sliding through this bit where I can feel the rock on my back and the rock on my stomach. And I'm just going, <gasps> trying to slide, my, and I could feel the rock on both bits, and that's the only gap there was. And I'm like, ah, what is going on? And he's got to keep going. It's that little voice from Dory. And just keep swimming, just keep swimming. <laughs> that's what's going on in my head at that point. Now, in some ways, it, it's a completely irrational fear. Like, Australia doesn't have earthquakes. The rocks don't go, ha, I tricked you, and move. It was underground, and it was unlikely. It's a huge kind of space, but why are we afraid of things like that? It's, it's just irrational at times. And, and yet, at other times in my life, I've been faced by things that are quite scary, like dogs barking at me. And, and I was fine. In fact, it just bit me, but I was cool with it. I'm like, it's just a dog. And it was pretty big, but, you know, I'm fine with it. But others are like, whoa, they freak me out. It's ironic, isn't it? How easily we get scared of irrational things, but so often it's the things we haven't thought much about that end up doing us the damage. How do you conquer fear? So, for the past four weeks, we've been looking at just one chapter in the book of Romans. 
uh, chapter 8. And the book of Romans is kind of like the Himalayas of the Bible. It's, it's a high point. And as you get to Romans chapter 8, it's like you've reached Mount Everest. And the passage that Natalie just read for us this morning is like the summit of Mount Everest. And we get to climb it and see how God shows us to conquer all fears, because that's what the apostle is talking about. So come with me and let me show you where we're headed today. Romans 8, 37. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see the pinnacle? Nothing can separate us from this love that Paul talks about. And the question for us is, how do we get there? How do I live life without fear of the things that creep into our world? Because so many things do creep in, don't they? They come in and scare us or distract us and take our eyes off the game of life. We, we start playing life to our own rules to, to run away from the fears we have and run toward things that will comfort us and run away from the God who made us. And the result of all of that is destruction, to reject the God who made us, to run away from Him. And that's exactly what we saw last week as Lachlan opened up the last part of Romans 8, where we saw that creation itself was groaning. Waiting for the day for humanity to rule it properly. Waiting for the day for people to act rightly. Because humanity can't look after ourselves or our world the way God made us to. But the pinnacle of chapter 8, this high point, the summit, shows us how that those who trust in Jesus can have absolute security, not only in this life, but in eternity. But in eternity. And grounds that security... On the foundation of God. Come with me to Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, verse 28. Paul says this, We know that in all things, sorry, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Now, that sentence is, is like a five-step kind of going up to the pinnacle of what God has done for all of us, all of them equally important. But it's kind of like a history lesson in the plans and purposes of God. Do you, do you see those words underlined? Not only did God foreknow in advance what would happen, He, he actually knew us before the creation of the world relationally. He, he knew that we would exist and, and since had, had a relationship in some way with us. Not only did He foreknow us, He predestined it. He determined, not just some random details of the world around us, but he predetermined who would be conformed to the image of his son. Not, not because of any intrinsic good in each or any of us. No, we all deserved hell for turning our backs on God. Romans 1 to 3 makes that clear. But he had a choice because of his choice. Before time began, God stopped and turned his attention to you who trust in Jesus. And he said, I want to do good to you. You'll be coming home with me on that last day. It was a decision that he made that was totally his, outside of anything we could do or say or think or act that was before we were even born. In a way, it's, it's a bit like a planned marriage. Sorry, an, a, a, yeah, you know, an arranged marriage. 
Where, where, where one party says, this is who you'll marry, and you kind of go, okay, and you move through. And as we know, arranged marriages generally work better than, than the ones that we choose. It's kind of, if you look at the stats, that's true. So often, we think we determine everything. But we can only come to him because he first came to us. Those he predestined, he called. He, he brought to himself as his action, not merely just through inviting us, but by summonsing us. Subjectively, through his spirit, if you trust in Jesus, it's because God said you, and you went, wow, look at Jesus. The hour he called you was the same hour you believed. Yet he did it in such a way where he, he, he wooed our will. He didn't force us or twist our arm. He, he showed us who he was. He revealed to us the majesty of what Jesus had done. And so we came to him, not destroying our will, but working in line with it as he called us to him. And those he called, Paul says, he also justified, declared right with him. Not because we were right with God. No, we're all sinners. We've all turned our backs on God. No one's perfect. But because of Jesus' death in our place, because Jesus took the penalty that we deserve so we could be declared right with God. He's using... Courtroom language here, justified, uh, just as if I'd never sinned. Right? It's the best way to remember it. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. It, it's, the, it's the declaration, guilty but forgiven. Because of Jesus, you can know what's going to be said of you on the day of judgment. When you walk into the courtroom of the true and living God, on that last day, clearly, unequivocally, will be spoken if you trust in Jesus, if God has called you to himself, not guilty, Paid in Christ. That is secure. And that's where those of us who are in Christ now stand. We stand four-fifths of the way to glory, to the top, right? So far in Romans 8, Paul's described glory in terms of a future experience that we'll get to enjoy when Jesus returns and we're with him and the world is pointing to how great he is. And we get to share in that with him. But God loves to talk about things that will happen in the future as if they've already happened. And this is what he speaks of sovereign. This is what he speaks of glory like. Because when you're dealing with a God who is in control of all things, the outcome is certain. So he can say, at this point now, those he justified, he also glorified. It's done. As sure as Jesus died and paid the price for those who are in him, is as sure as you will be glorified. And God speaks of it as if it's already done. It's already happened. The future glory and joy to come is already ours. Do you believe that? Or do you let the things of the world around you slip in and think, ah, life sucks, it's hard, and it is hard, and sometimes it does suck, but you, you miss the pinnacle of what God says is true of you right now if you trust in Jesus. Have you seen how great this is? Now, sure, we don't fully experience that yet. It won't be until the day that Jesus comes back and all things are put right. But for those in Jesus, that glory is ours now. It's a certainty. It is our security. And the reason that all these things are so sure and so secure is the repeated word throughout the whole section. I don't know if you noticed it. It doesn't say uh, they worked to get justification. They did this. They did that. The whole way through, repeated one word, he God did it. God did every single part of that section. He foreknew. He predestined. 
He called, he justified, and he glorified. It is all about what God does, not us. And that brings great security because it doesn't depend on how good I am or on my efforts because God is in control. He is the one that's doing it. He's drawing me to him. For some of us, that's really hard to hear. Because like all sinners, we like to be in control. We like to call the shots. We like to say, you know what? I'm a Christian because I chose to be a Christian. I did all that hard work reading through the history and I looked at all that stuff and I'm here because I chose it. And it's true, you, you might have done lots of hard work. But the scriptures are clear that left to our own, none of us would choose God. None of us. We just meander off, drift into the sea like some sort of capsized boat, a thousand kilometers off the coast. We can't rescue ourselves. We need someone to come to us. We need saving. And the sovereign predestination of God is the plain teaching of Scripture. The only question is, how will we respond to God's work? We can either shake our fists at God and say, no, I choose you, I'm in control. Or we can respond with overwhelming gratitude. Thank you that you came to me. Thank you that you came to someone who had nothing attractive about ourselves who in fact wanted nothing to do with you, who in fact was your enemy and had turned your back on you. Thank you that you come to me, the one who shipwrecked my own self, yet you still came and rescued me. Nowhere does the Scriptures say that those who desire to come to him, though, can't. That's the immediate response, isn't it? But what about those who want to come but God hasn't predestined? That doesn't seem to be a category the Bible ever hold out. Jesus says um, that whoever knocks will be let in, the door will be opened. Whoever seeks will find, and whoever knocks, the door will be opened to. So if you've not yet placed Jesus in his rightful position as ruler over your life, come. He will not shut the door. He will not hold you out. Come now before it's too late, before Jesus returns, for then the door will be shut. But not now, not yet. And if you have come to him, the scriptures are clear. It's only because of his work that we've come to him. And that gives great security for he will hold us to the end. So as we get to the foundation of our security and understand that it's all based on God, we, get, we then get to see the joy of the summit of Romans 8. Paul kind of lays out this last bit of this passage, kind of daring anyone to... to, to um, Deny our place in God's plan. He's kind of rolling out five questions that people might ask and might put forward to think, you know, but what about this? But what about that? But what about that? Trying to undermine the security that we have for those who trust in Jesus. And the answers to these five questions are five incredible truths that we'll do well to hold on to and to shape our lives by, for by them we find true security. Through them and because of them, we can have no fear. Romans 8.31 starts with, What then are we to say about these things? Speaking about that great chain of what God has already done. What are we to say about these things? Romans 8.31, question one. We're going to go through these five questions if you want to pace it out in the rest of your outline. Question number one. If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? The God who flung stars into space, 
who with four words spoke, let there be light. And light existed. The universe came into existence. He created all things. He still sustains all things merely by his word. That God, Paul tells us, is for us. He's for us. (laughs) I'm so tempted in life to think, ah, why is this going on? Why is this happening? Maybe God isn't for me, but Paul says, no, no, no. God is for us. If he is for us, then who can be against us? Who can be against us? Now, in one sense, the answer is nobody. If God's for us, no one can be against us. But more accurately, what's kind of going on here is, well, maybe everyone's against us, but who cares? Because God is for us. With God, you never come off second best. You never, you'll never come across anyone who's stronger than God or smarter than God. More powerful, more loving, more sacrificial, more faithful, more truthful than him. And he is for us. So often we're tempted to misread times of trouble and hardship as evidence that that God doesn't have our back, that he doesn't care. Have you experienced that? You go through lulls and times that are really hard. You're like, "Maybe, maybe God just isn't for me anymore. Maybe that's what comes up. And we fear that either... Our failures have become opportunities for God to turn on us, that we've done too much. Or or, or maybe we think he hates us. He's he's disengaged from us. Or maybe we think he's just holding out on us. But as Paul gets to the, the pinnacle of this chapter, the reality of what God has already done for us, he says the evidence is this. God is for us because of what he's done for you. And that is the answer to Paul's second question. Question number two, 832. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. Ready? How will he also, how will he not also with him grant us everything? How will he also, I keep doing this because I've got the NIV in my head rather than CSB, so I'm just repenting. (laughs) NIV is great as well, just a side note. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Here's how his argument goes. If you look at the incredible cost of what God has already done, in the midst of that trial and hardship, that that, that God the Father has given up his one and only Son, who's been with him for all eternity, at the Father's side, perfect relationship within the Trinity forever. I can't even imagine forever, but forever. That has existed there. God the Father gives up his Son. Jesus willingly lays down his life. For us and dies. If God has already done the harder thing, the bigger thing, the incredibly amazing thing that He's done, laying down the life of His Son, do you really think He's going to hold out on the much easier and less costly benefits of what Jesus' death brought? The hardest thing He's ever had to do was handing over His Son, and He's done it. He did what. He never asked Abraham to carry through with. And if he's done that, why would he hold back on the promises that he secured by that sacrifice? Why would he? (laughs) At incredible cost to himself, Jesus laid down his life. The father has felt the pain. Why would he not come through with other things that are far less costly? Your resurrected body. The declaration of your total forgiveness given in Jesus. 
your adoption as a child of God, your place in the new creation, eternal life, anything that's genuinely in your best interest as you live this life now, why would God, who is in control of all things, hold back from that? The answer is he would not. How do I know? Look to the cross where God the Son laid down his life. The costly thing has been done. The Father gave the Son. The Son willingly suffered in our place. So we get to experience the certainty of God's blessings. Both in the future, when they're ours fully, when Jesus returns, and in the present. (laughs) Knowing we have all we truly need. That God has given us what we need in these moments. If he's given his Son, then of course, he's going to hold us through and give us what we need. But perhaps for you, you recognize that the blessings are there, but they're so far away. That voice inside your head says, you've gone too far. They're not for you. You've done too much. And a catalog of past sins starts flicking through in your mind, and you think about the things you've said and thought and done. Or maybe there's just one that kind of comes front and center, one big one that's there, and you're like, ah, God can't possibly love me. That can't possibly be my future. And and guilt creeps in. And and then as as you come to the scriptures, you see the perfection of the true and living God, that he is perfect, and you recognize how shaming your imperfection is. And you think, that's all very well and good, but not for me. To that fear, Paul addresses question number three. Question three Verse 33, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? I love it. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Since the start of Romans 1, Paul has put everyone in a virtual courtroom. He's shown that on our own, we're all guilty before God. He made this charge in chapter 3 on the screen. There's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good. Not even one. He puts us all in the same courtroom. All in the same place. Saying, all of you, you don't deserve life. But then in 3.21, he goes through to explain that because of Jesus' perfect life offered for us, Jesus is offered as a substitute In our place, his faithfulness is offered for ours. And those who trust in Jesus are forgiven because of what he has done. He takes our debt, we take his life. We're forgiven and justified just as if I'd never sinned. God has not left us in a courtroom condemned. But with Jesus taking our condemnation for us, justified. So that those who trust Jesus can know, can know for sure right now what will be said of them on that last day. Aloud and clear, not guilty. It's a certainty. God's verdict has been delivered now. And so when those fears come in and start making us think, I'm not good enough, I've not done enough, we need to say, hang on a minute, who am I going to listen to? My, my take, my verdict on my life? Or the verdict of the true and living God who made me, who I've offended, who died for me. God's verdict has been delivered now. And if we have that verdict of not guilty, then who has the right to condemn us? Who can stand up and say, you've gone too far? No one can. But Satan tries, doesn't he? He tries to fire potshots 
into your life to say that was too much. You're not really a Christian. You didn't do this well enough. You didn't do that well enough. Maybe you should just walk away. Maybe there's a better life over here. But here's the news, friends. Every single one of those bullets Satan fires, sure they hurt, but they're blanks. They hurt because we flinch, because we think they're real, because we think what he's saying is true, but every single one of them are lies. Oh, there might be some truth mixed in. We might have actually done the thing that he's said we've done. But oh, does that affect my position with God because of what Jesus has done? Who am I going to listen to? God or Satan? Our answer ought to be the true and living God. Remember this, as doubts creep in, Satan is only firing blanks. He's firing blanks. You need to know that in Christ, it is impossible for you to make God angry with you. In Christ, it is impossible for you to make God angry with you. See, when you do good and God looks at you, he smiles. And when you do bad and and sin and awful thing toward God, God looks at you and smiles. Do you know why? Because he sees Jesus. Because Jesus says, forgiven, I died for that. And he sees the life, the perfect life of the Son. Oh, God will discipline us as a Father lovingly disciplines his children. Hebrews tells us that. But his anger, his wrath is averted at the cross once for all. Never to be poured out on those who trust in Jesus. No condemnation. Oh, the joy of those words. So as your friends and family point out your failings, let's be honest, we all have them. There are daily things that I regret saying and doing and thinking that would bring shame on me and shame on the gospel. We all have them. None of us lives rightly. None of us are without sin. This side of Jesus returns. But as friends and family point them out, as these things come to light, don't shrivel back. Don't try and cover over. Don't sink under the weight of our failure. Don't give in to the accusations of Satan or of others or of your own conscience. You know, we can be our own worst enemy at times. We can talk ourselves out of so much rather than listen to the clear word of God. What do we do at those moments? What Paul has done. Preach the news of the gospel to each other. To yourself. Own your failures. Say, yes, I'm not perfect. Yes, I'm sinful. Yes, I do things wrong. But Jesus died for me. He took the penalty that I deserve. It's happened. It is finished. That was my death. I'm now a forgiven sinner. Because God plucked me out. Because God secured my future. And I'm asking him to change me day by day to be more and more like Jesus, but not in order to be saved, but because he has already done it. All of us, we're works in progress. Until the day Jesus returns, God is shaping us and molding us to be like his son and holding us in. So trust him. Don't walk away. Don't give up. Don't let Satan derail your security. He may know your past and press in on it, but God has secured your future. And he's also secured Satan's future as well. And Satan knows that that's where he's headed. And he can't do anything about it. He just wants to bring you with him. Trust the word of God. And in essence, it's trusting the word of God that is the answer to Paul's fourth question. Romans 8, 34. Who is the one who condemns? In other words, who, who can condemn? Who is the only one that can bring a charge against me? It's not Satan, it's not others. Paul's answer is, verse 34, who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus. He is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. 
The only one that condemns us is the one who's on our side. Is the one whom God raised from the dead and gave all authority in heaven and earth to him. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus, the one we trust in, the one who died for us, who took our penalty on the cross, is the only one who can condemn us. And you think after all the effort of all the pain he went through, the separation of the love of the Father, bearing the wrath that we deserve on him, the the shame of letting his creation nail him to the cross. You think after all he went through, he'd turn and say, yes, I died for you. Yes, I did all that. Now I'm going to condemn you in the end anyway. Tricked you. (laughs) What sort of sick God is that? Why would he do that? No, every moment of every day, the Bible tells us that Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father as our advocate, speaking for us. Not making cheap excuses for our failure, but saying, yes, they're sinful, but they're mine. They are in me. In the middle of every sin, of every moment, Jesus is advocating for you who trust in him. He's speaking to the, beh- to the Father on, on your behalf, in the middle of your failures, when they're going on, he's applying his death to your sins, declaring each one paid in full, paid in full. And he's the one who can condemn us, but he's for us. We have no reason to fear, no reason to find security in anything other than him. How amazing is it of what Jesus has done for us? Why would he do it? What keeps him at the Father's right-hand side? Well, it's the same thing that kept him Nailed to the cross. It wasn't the nails, but his love. The ultimate ground for our assurance, for being able to say we have no fear because of what Jesus has done, is the love of God. His love towards us. No wedge can ever become, come between you and his love. And so Paul asks the last of his five questions. He's kind of at the end here, desperately to, to scoop up any other kind of wedge that might become between you and God and and you and Christ's love. Look at what he says in verse 35 in question 5. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? They're all asked with a no. Can affliction separate us? No. Can distress? No. Do you not know this is the God of the universe? Or famine, not having what we need, being hungry, being without things. No. What about nakedness? No. Danger? No. Sword? Do you know who you're talking about? And he gives us a dose of what we should expect, though. As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And you read that and you're like, well, that's not very exciting. (laughs) I like the other stuff. I like the glory at the end and, and the Father knowing me and the Son caring for me and interceding for me. What is this being put to death all day long? Where did we get the idea that coming to Christ means no more pain? Where did that come from? Where do we get the idea that if God puts his love on us, we will never suffer here and now? See, throughout the scriptures, the expectation is that that will be our life because we're in a broken world. A world that's groaning, longing for the day that Jesus comes back. Life is not meant to be easy or comfortable or nice. It's, it's hard. Well, it was originally designed to be that way, but we rejected God. And so the world is the way it is because of sin, because of rejecting Him. 
and our expectation before Jesus comes back in this little glimpse of, an, of a moment in, in, in world history, in the little tiny 80, 90, 100 at best years we live, that it's going to be hard. What Paul does here is he, he quotes Psalm 44. And in that psalm, God's people were lamenting. They're crying out to God because they've been crushed by their enemy. But they've been crushed not because they'd forgotten God. In fact, they hadn't rejected Him or forgotten Him. Their suffering was not a result of their sin. And nor was it a denial of God's unfailing love. And that's what the psalmist holds out. That here are some of God's people who all day long are being put to death. Counted as sheep to be slaughtered, not because of anything they had done in this instance, but because of the world they lived in. It was part of a broken world, a world longing to be back in right relationship with the Creator. So, friends, in life now, don't expect comfort. Don't expect bliss to be happening now. In a sense, I'm all for the prosperity gospel. That idea that if you come to Jesus, life will be great and brilliant. It will. I can guarantee you that. Just not yet, not fully. It will be brilliant when Jesus returns. But now, oh, there's a great joy of knowing these things that are a certainty. But life will be hard. Marriage, relationships, family, the workplace, our finances, our, our kind of enjoyment. What we we tend to think that we, we expect life to go well. We expect relationships to work because, well, we're Christians and they should work, but they won't always work. Don't expect them to. Marriages won't always work. They'll be hard. There'll be ups and downs. Life will deal us horrible cards. Our finances might fall through. There might be a massive world famine. Sickness might take. There are so many things that could go wrong. But that does not mean God doesn't love us. What he promises us is so much better than comfort now. He promises us the knowledge to be able to get through those things. To see how fleeting this life is and see the wonder of what God has done for us and to use the time we have to live for him. He sets our expectations. And so he concludes in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We win. We get victory. That's what he's saying, friends. If you trust in Jesus... All that stuff, it doesn't matter squat. Oh, it's hard. Oh, he understands it's hard. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Why? Through him who loved us. Because, verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What God is saying is this. I love you. And no one and nothing will get in the way of my love. Do you feel the warmth and strength of our God? Who has called us out of darkness and brought us to his son and gone through this amazing sacrifice for us. Oh, if you ever doubt that God loves you, look to the cross. Where you see quite clearly, nailed there, God the Son saying, I love you. Trust me. Friends, if you don't yet trust in Jesus... Let me ask you today, what are you waiting for? Jesus' death is sufficient for you. Come to him and put your life in his hands and, and, and live life for him. I know there'll be parts where you're like, ah, oh, from this side, it doesn't really look like it's going to be a better life. You're telling me there's going to be suffering and death. Friends, 100% of people die. All of us. Death comes to all. The question is, what's next? 
And then we think that we know what life is. We think we know what comfort and joy and security is. But friends, they all disappear. We never reach them. To think that this life is all there is, is like C.S. Lewis says, sitting in a mud pool, playing with the mud, refusing to go to a holiday at the beach because we think the mud is better. You kind of get it, don't you? We're looking at the mud we have saying, this is great, I love mud. And we're pouring it over our face. We're like, yeah, I love it. What could be better than this? Because you can't imagine the ocean. Your little pool of water is just a mud pool on the ground. And you can't imagine seeing so much water that your eyes can't reach the end of it. And you're standing seeing the waves and the beach and the joy and the glory. How much better will eternity be? If you are in Jesus, if you trust in him, then you have nothing to fear. Your future is secure. It cannot be taken from you. Any insecurity that drifts in merely comes from our eyes drifting from the gospel, from who Jesus is and what he's done. And our eyes slip and we're like, oh, what am I going to do with this thing in front of me? How am I going to live? But we need to lift our eyes to what's already happened. Look to Christ and what he's done and see his love. My old boss, when I was a pastor at the last church I was at, had this picture on his wall. It's a pretty famous picture. And it's a picture of a lighthouse. You might have seen it. There's a picture of it on the screen. It's a picture of this massive lighthouse. And he had it on his wall, he said, to remind him to stand firm. Uh, apparently, it's off the coast of France, this, this great lighthouse that's there being smashed in by the waves. And you kind of look at it and you go, yes, that's what I want to be like as a Christian. I want to stand firm to the end. But then you notice that there's actually a guy in the picture And you're reminded, oh, that's right, Jesus is the one who stands firm and I'm in him, like that guy. And so that guy is standing there, kind of as the wave comes in. But then he would say that the thing that I really loved about this picture is when you zoom in on the man, what do you notice? Let's see the next one. He's got his hand in his pocket. Can you see that? He's standing there while the lighthouse is being smashed in with his hand in his pocket. He's pretty much saying, I'm sweet. Not only is he protected by this lighthouse, but he's confident in it. Friends, Romans 8 wants to provide for you that confidence, that you can live life with your hand in your pocket, not because of what you have done, but because God has you secure, standing firm in him. Jesus died our death. Sin has been dealt with. We have nothing to fear. So how do we respond? In security, we thank him. Why don't we do that now? Why don't we spend a moment thanking our God for what he has done for us? Let's pray. Father God, we are in awe that you would come to us because of nothing we have done, that you would love us, not because of anything lovable in ourselves, but because of who you are and your complete choice. We thank you that our salvation lies in your hands and not our own, for we know if it was in our hands, we would run. Please help us to keep looking to your son as the trials and struggles of life come through the ups and downs and suffering and persecution and famine and all these things hit us. Clearly remind us by your spirit and his word that we are secure in Christ because of what Jesus has done. That our future is certain and that no one and nothing can get between us and your love. Father, we are so thankful. We're thankful for your love. We are thankful for your son. We are thankful for the future you've offered us.
we ask that you would shape our lives this day to be lives of thankfulness. Keep moulding us into the likeness of your Son as we proclaim this truth. Let it ring out from us personally as families through the hardship, through the struggle. Let it ring out into the world around us so people might see just how much you love us. Pray this in your Son's great name. Amen.